Hi, dear friends. Welcome to this latest episode of Love Service Wisdom. I'm Marissa Rada, and I am going to share with you in this in this episode, uh, Psychedelic Explorations Part 2. I did Part 1 a couple weeks back. That was about a recent, the most recent experience that I'd had with psychedelics, which was with the therapeutic use of ketamine. And I started in that moment with uh, that experience, but I figured I should go back and give you more of an in-depth history of where I started and my journey through the use of of psychedelics and um, my experiences with them. So let's get into it. For me, little background, I'm actually Florida born and raised. I was born in Tampa and grew up in Daytona Beach in the 80s and 90s. Graduated from high school there, mainland high school, go Bucks. So my whole life was was uh, on the beach there in Daytona, which if you can recall in the 80s and the 90s was quite the happening place with spring break and bike week and the races and MTV and all of the madness uh, of the transient nature of a tourist town. And, uh, and I also grew up quite uh, low income, let's say, and, and was... Um, on my own a lot and uh, grew up on the beach side there right near the boardwalk where all the madness was happening. And and let's just say I was exposed to lots and lots of different things. And I often think back that uh, I must have been and still am quite protected, like have a whole arsenal of angels around me that I w- went through my childhood relatively unscathed. I mean, not fully, but for the most part, compared to what was happening around me. Uh, Yeah, not incredibly traumatic, though, you know, some incidences. And so anyways, that's to say that I, it was kind of wild growing up there in Daytona and we had access to all kinds of things. I mean, I guess the first time I smoked pot was... I want to say eighth grade, but it might have been seventh grade. One of my friends in the neighborhood, a boy, he took some pot from his mom. And I remember us trying it out on the front porch of my house there. And we were just babies, kids. And we, it was, must have been a joint that we rolled. And I remember smoking it. I don't think anything happened, which is very common for um, <clears throat> the first time that you do some substances. But I remember my mom getting home and saying, what's that smell? And I'm like all teenage kids just playing dumb saying, we don't know. We don't know what that is. And uh, and I guess I should begin this podcast too with saying that I don't condone the use of any psychedelics. And then if you want to voyage into them, it's probably a good idea. It is a good idea to talk to your healthcare provider first. This is just me relating my experiences. So that happened, but never really got into, I never, I never would ever classify myself as a pothead or uh, someone that used that quite regularly. And then a couple years later, when I was 15, I know the exact day because I wrote in my journal on March 27th, 2000, or sorry, gosh, not 2000, 1995. So it was the day before March 26th, 1995 was my first experience with LSD. And that was something that my peer group 
my friends, a lot of my friends were older, uh, were experimenting with, and it was, and I had a new boyfriend and he again was, uh, I was a sophomore, he was a senior and him and his good friend and one of my good friends and his girlfriend who was becoming my good friends, we thought it would be a good idea to try LSD. They had all done it before. This was my first time. And it was at a time when, uh, my mom was out of town. So it was my house was the scene of the crime. And the five of us did it together. It was just like a little piece of paper tab. And uh, I thought nothing was happening for quite a while. And then one of my friends had a good idea. That's in quotes, good idea to smoke some pot. I'm like, okay, sure. And so then we did that. And that spiraled into... The, from that uh, rocket fuel to the LSD spout into probably the worst, one of the worst experiences of my whole life where it was the most traumatic, the most traumatic, one being my first, right? I had no idea what the hallucinogenic psychedelic state might be. And I remember sitting on the front porch, same one where we'd smoked pot a few years before, and uh, looking over my friend, we're sitting on this porch swing and we're going back and forth. And I'm like, I think I feel, I think I feel something. Cause I was looking at his face and it became like, um, I think like a kaleidoscope, but infinite. One of those mirrors that you look into or, or um, you're, what you're looking into just goes into infinity. And I say this to him and I'm looking at him and he's like, really, what do you see? And I like turn away from his face and I look out at the streetlight. It was at night. And under the streetlight, it just became the swirling tunnel of demons. Think like um, what Terrence McKenna describes as the machine elves. So those like demonic looking machine elves uh, were coming out of this spiraling tunnel into the depths of the hell realm is what it looked like to me. And I was raised... Roman Catholic. So I had this mythology and symbology conditioned into me of heaven, hell, devil, angels, that kind of thing. And so from that point, it was like, <laughs> it was like um, a conspiracy that I had, that I, my two friends, my, my, um, my good friends and his girlfriend, they had left. I went to her place. And so I was just there with my boyfriend and his friends. I was convinced, it became this paranoid delusion that they were, I was wanting to be with me so that they could sacrifice me or something like that. And it became this very much like good versus evil mentality in my mind. And I was convinced not only that they were bad, but that I had died too. And I was just looking through my journal to refresh my memory about this experience. And I, there was this phrase I'd forgotten about, but it repeated over and over again during that journey that, that was, and that's how you ended. And that's how you ended. And that's how you ended. And I would get into these spiral loops. And I even remember feeling like I was spinning, like I was spiraling or like I needed to spiral. I don't know. If you guys have had a bad trip experiences, I'm sure some of you can relate. And then I would get to this and that's how you ended place. It was just like this loop that was repeating over and over again. Of course, I was incredibly resistant to it. And my boyfriend at the time was not being the nicest guy about it, was kind of doing some things to uh, instigate it or make it worse for me, let's just say. And uh, it was horrible. It was terrible. It was terrible through and through. I was convinced that I died. I remember having this thought like, my mom's going to come home 
and see that I died and I'm going to be in so much trouble. And yeah, I just never thought I was ever going to get out of that. Of course, it lasted for like eight hours. And finally, like you do, calm down and finally got to sleep. And then, I mean, my life was sort of like before that experience and after that experience. After that experience, my work was, I had to like, it was so traumatic for me and I was so young. I had to figure out how can I put myself back together psychologically, mentally, spiritually, that I, though I wasn't like consciously thinking of the spiritual at that time. But just, I was also feeling like, oh, the whole nature of reality is different than I've been raised to believe, that I've been raised to believe within the Catholic paradigm, within the Western paradigm. What is the nature of reality? So at that time, it sparked my interest through my own healing journey of what is the nature of consciousness? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive? What are these states that we go into? And so began my spiritual journey from that point. And it was almost like, it was so horrible. And that aspect of dying was so visceral and real. When I look back, it's like, oh, that was your shamanic death in a way, where you're just ripped apart through your soul and then you put yourself back together. So unbeknownst to me, that was a situation that I got myself into luckily survived and didn't die. Though I also had this sort of strange theory come out of it like, oh no, I actually did die in that reality. But in another reality, my soul continued to live on. It was like timeline split. And that was an actual death. That's in quotes. But then in another parallel reality, I I didn't die and I survived. And that's the one my consciousness is still moving through and in. So I thought that for a while too. And um, yeah, So then um, didn't do any other drugs after that for a very, 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 very long time because I was afraid and it taught me the, the, how um, powerful these substances can be. And it gave me a huge amount of respect for them and definitely a sense of like, oh, that's not for me to play with recreationally. And so then through the rest of high school, when a lot of my friends were continuing to do a lot more substances... Um, and expanding into things like MDMA and psilocybin, cocaine, of course, that was always out there too on the peripheries. You know, things were, kids, teenagers were just exploring and doing the things like a lot of teenagers do. And I was the one that was like, nope, not going to, not going to. I was just way, way too afraid. And like I said, held them in a a, a more um, revered place that I wasn't willing to step back into willy-nilly, let's say. So I didn't do anything again for a very long time, though it was done around me. And then the rave scene was happening in the 90s too, in uh, Daytona and Orlando and Firestone, the big club in Orlando. And so I guess there was, there were some events that were happening, but it would be a very infrequent um, experience. Though I know my first experience with MDMA ecstasy was in the 90s at those rave clubs that we would go to and dance and have fun and go see DJs. And uh, then college and went through my whole first year of college without really doing anything again. I wasn't even, like I said, smoking that much pot, which is such a common thing for young kids to do like that. And uh, then I got a new boyfriend who was 
a little bit younger than me, and he was he was pretty confident in those psychedelic realms. And so finally, again, did I begin to do, I remember doing LSD again for the first time in my sophomore year of college and being really afraid going into it and uh, it starting out not very well because I was so resistant and so traumatized from the first time. But having a sweet, good friend guide me into a calmer state. And she's still a really great friend today. I love her so, so much. And um, yeah, so gently beginning to explore back into those realms through college. And then the same boyfriend and I, we moved to Sarasota where New College was when he was starting school, which is the Honors College of Florida, similar to Prescott or Evergreen, schools like that. And coincidentally, the organization MAPS the um, Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies had its headquarters in Sarasota. Uh, Rick Doblin, he was like a character in Sarasota. He was there, living there in uh, this amazing house. And he would even teach courses at New College um, as well, ones that my boyfriend took. And so then we were in this new scene where the Association for Psychedelic Studies was in the town that we were in. And I was with still with the same guy. We were together for a couple of years and lived together and um, continued our journeys with psilocybin more now, LSD, ecstasy, MDMA. And he was quite the pot smoker. And I would, I started to smoke more when I was with him because it was like in the environment with me until I started to have panic attacks. And I kind of associated my panic attacks with getting high. And if you've ever had a panic attack, they are hundred percent, the absolute worst when you're in the full-blown state of it. And so then I made that conscious choice to like eliminate even smoking pot because having a panic attack was definitely not worth it for me. Um, so then that was happening and connecting with MAPS. We would go to the MAPS house and have parties. And there was this um, pavilion at New College called the Palm Court Pavilion, PCP. And man, it was just a wonderful, great way to spend the college years uh, in the typical or maybe not so typical college fashion because it was a, a quite the, um, I don't know, like forward-thinking fringe school at the time for sure. So that was happening. And then I graduated college with my bachelor's in psychology. Again, still motivated by... Um, wanting to understand. Now I was very more aware of the spiritual realm, right? So I'd started to read books when I was a teen. The Way of the Peaceful Warrior was one of the first ones that I read that really helped to guide me and set me on my course and help to speak to these different higher states of consciousness in a way that was accessible for little me who's beginning the journey. And then I was reading lots of Alan Watts and um, Zen mind, beginner mind, and trying to meditate and reading other philosophical books and uh, all kinds of things, whatever. And then the new age stuff that was coming through in college. The, and I spoke to that one, my podcast with Asia Andromeda, the bringers of the new dawn and the, um, the Chiron channels books and things like that. So getting more. And then like the, um, what was that one book called that was like, the Secret Teachings of All Things, which was more like uh, Masonic, Egyptian, Gnostic, 
Rosicrucian, is that the right way to say that? Um, ancient teachings or hidden teachings, the esoteric teachings. And my boyfriend, he introduced me to the writings of like uh, the sci-fi writer, Philip K. Dick, which I just loved and read all of his books. So that was kind of like building in the background. And then I found yoga too when I was in college and became really dedicated to my practice because I was was able to witness how it was affecting me mentally, spiritually, psychologically. The physical aspect of it wasn't what appealed to me that was great to get grounded in my body for the first time um, and embodying my physical self in a way that I never had before that was starting. So that's all to say I, my whole passion and my motivation was still these realms and states of consciousness. So I was studying psychology and I got my bachelor's degree in psychology and graduated. And then I realized, or I knew that I wanted to be a yoga teacher because I could blend what I was learning in psychology and psychological elements with yoga. I saw yoga as a, a psychological discipline, spiritual discipline that uh, you could use in your life to understand yourself. So that was when I was 21, 22. I was already in that place with yoga, which really excited me. And I went and did my yoga teacher training at the Nasara Yoga Institute in Costa Rica. That was in 2002. And then I came back. And I remember right when I got back from that, there was the Church of Santo Daime, which is the Brazilian ayahuasca church that was coming through to Sarasota. And I participated in my first ayahuasca ceremony through that church. And it was one where, if you haven't done it before, think like there's a priest central figure and then there's the men and the women. We're, we had to all wear white and then we were divided by gender on each sides of the room. And then we were given um, like a booklet of chants or songs to sing that were very like Catholic uh, meets nature first. And we had to sing these songs and do this like little sidestep shuffle while having been given ayahuasca and the journey is starting to happen. And they want to keep it in this very collective energy environment. So they don't really allow you to leave and have your own inner journey, but stay with the group and with this chanting energy. So that was my first experience with ayahuasca, which was really pretty mild and gentle, I would say as far as how ayahuasca can be. I don't really remember purging that much either. And I remember too, which is kind of silly, like getting done with the ceremony. It started in the morning and later that night going to work and working as a waitress in the nightclub. Um, yeah, which I probably shouldn't have done, but I remember I remember being there and like I was, yeah, it was it was okay. It all turned out well. You're just kind of in a fragile open state after the use of psychedelics. So it wasn't the wisest choice, but I remember that's what happened. And um, yeah, so that was my first experience with ayahuasca and the church of Santo Daime. And then I um, continued, oh, and then I um, became a mom not long after. In 2003, I was pregnant with my daughter, Maya. And speaking of Mayans, I was so into the Mayan culture and history. I found in one of the used bookstores in Sarasota, um, 
a book by Jose Arguelles, The Mayan Factor. And man, I just read it and ravished it through and read all of his books and then so many other books on the history and the mythology and the theory of the Mayans and who they were as a civilization. And I took my first trip to the Yucatan, must have been like, this was before I graduated, so it was probably like 2000 or 2001. Yeah, probably 2000 with my boyfriend, um, the same one. We backpacked for two weeks through the Yucatan to see the, all the Mayan ruins. So I was just fascinated by the Mayans and their culture and so drawn to it and the history and, of course, their use of um, mushrooms there. When he, were, when he and I were on that trip, we were in Palenque and we wanted to get some mushrooms while we were there so we could journey. And I remember walking... Um, from the sites of Palenque down to we were where we were camping. I can't remember what it was called now. And there was a farmer walking through a field holding up this bag and he was saying, Ongos locos, ongos locos, ongos locos. And we're like, sweet, there are the crazy mushrooms. So we bought mushrooms from this farmer in Palenque and then did them when we were later, when we were in Merida. And then we went to Ushmal, another one of the sites in the Yucatan, and had kind of a rough time there too. It was way too intense to be at a site. It's just, again, kind of willy-nilly on psychedelics. Whew, it was hard. It was hard, but fascinating at the same time. And um, yeah, so that happened. And that's just to say, when I was going to have my daughter... I knew I was going to have a daughter eventually. I had a vision of it at one point and I knew that I would name her Maya. So that's who I have in my life. And then when I became a mom, my life became, you know, a much more mom focused. I was working like six jobs and teaching yoga. I opened a studio in Montana with my mom. Going back to school, I went to get my, I joined the PhD program for transpersonal psychology at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. So was in their global program and working, working, being a mom, going to school <clears throat> was my life. Psychedelics were not a part of my life. And, um, and that was great. That was totally, totally fine. And then I moved to California even in, uh, gosh, it must've been 2008 and helped to open a center that was, was called the Sonoma Center for Change. And it was a holistic, transpersonal psychology-based, eco-psychology-based substance abuse residential treatment center. And substance abuse wasn't my field, but it was a, a, a cohort member in my graduate program. It was his specialty in field. So he was kind of the driving force behind that. And we were opening that together. And then... Uh, that was happening and Maya was out there with me. It was really a sweet time living in the Redwoods off of Green Valley Road there in Sebastopol. And um, then the 2008 um, stock market crash happened and the center lost its funding and we had to close. And then I moved up to Seattle. I was in a new relationship with my ex-husband, Bill. And I remember when I got up there, um, it was going to be temporary because he wanted to move to Boise from Seattle when he was done with his master's in public health fellowship. And so Maya was in kindergarten and I was in this uh, like in-between limbo zone of waiting to go to Boise where then I would start to root again. And so when I was in Seattle, I thought to myself, 
what did I used to like to do before I was a mom? Like, what was I into? What were my interests? Because I'd been so work, school, mom focused. And um, I remember like, oh yeah, I loved the Mayans. I loved psychedelics. I wonder what's going on with that now. And so I remember doing a search online and finding Reality Sandwich. And then there was some like um, local spiritual magazine also that coincidentally had an article by Daniel Pinchbeck in it that who is a founder of, one of the founders of Reality Sandwich. So I wrote an email to Daniel Pinchbeck asking to be a writer for their online magazine. And at the time, it was sort of a hub for, because it was, what, 2009 by that time? It was a hub for like the coming Mayan 2012 prophecy and the integration of the use of psychedelics and Burning Man and art and aliens and like alternate history and crazy ideas and whatnot. So I started to write for Reality Sandwich and um, was getting involved with them. And then Bill and I moved to Boise and settled. And then Reality Sandwich was having one of their retreats, their first, no, it was their second, their second retreat down in Boulder, Utah that I got to go down to. And that was um, wonderful. I had this kind of same feeling of when I was in school at ITP, like, oh, these are my people. I found my tribe, had a wonderful time. And then went back again in 2010 for their third retreat. And then that, I want to say it was January of 2011, went down with a bunch of the same group. It was like Graham Hancock and Jose Arguelles was down. This is at the Cancun Mayan Festival or Mayan Conference the Mayan 2012 conference. Jose Horgolis is there. That was a big deal for me that I got to meet him. Daniel Pinchbeck, of course, and again, Graham Hancock and some Mayan leaders and elders. And um, who else? I can't remember off the top of my head, but I was teaching yoga for them. So I got to come down as staff and teach yoga for that retreat. And that's all just to say was kind of like getting immersed more and more back into this world while doing all my other yoga things here in Boise because it was just things that I was passionate about and interested in and um, uh, wasn't really, again, using psychedelics at all during those time periods, but they were just something that was up and researching. Particularly when I was in school at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, it was founded on, well, one of the founding principles was altered states of consciousness and what are they? And how do we access them? And what do they mean? And what are peak experiences? And uh, what is the spiritual life? And the spiritual life being so integral to a holistic, uh, grounded human and um, teaching. I got to, I got to present at the Association of Transpersonal Psychology, their last conference that was in Palo Alto. And that was in 2009. I remember some of the first research from John Hopkins being there, being presented in the slideshow about the work that they were doing with psilocybin and cancer treatment and um, end-of-life care. And then I remember this panel with Stephen Baer, who wrote this big book, Singing with the Plants, and Rick Doblin and a lot of other folks on psychedelics and the use of psychedelics today. So that was happening in more of like the research realm that I was in. And I got to, I was on a panel and that was like, my, my talk was something like yoga as a path to oneness or something. Um, anyways, so that was a part of it. And then when I was in 
Mexico for that Cancun Mayan retreat for those guys I mentioned before. Daniel invited me to be the yoga teacher for the Chimbre opening, the opening of Chimbre, which was um, an ayahuasca retreat center in Puerto Maldonado, Peru. And of course, I thought that was a great idea. It was going to be two weeks in Peru where I could stay and teach yoga and meditation for this brand new center that Reality Sandwich was partnering with to open with this um, Peruvian shopping shaman, Moncoludo. And maybe like two months before it was supposed to happen, I remember talking to Daniel on the phone and him saying, you know, Reality Sandwich is kind of backing out of it and we're having a difficulties with Moncaludo and this guy, Rob, who was helping to open the center. And, you know, he said he's not going to be there anymore. And he wasn't, um, he didn't feel good about the shaman and I could still go or not go. And I felt like at the time, if they're still moving forward with this and it's, the event is going to happen, I felt almost felt like it was my duty to go to help protect the space and to help bring light and groundedness and safety and clarity to the space for those who were going to journey. So I went and uh, that was, I want to say April of 2010, but maybe it was 2011, must've been 2011 and um, went down there into the middle of nowhere, Peru, South near Ecuador, right on the Amazon. And um the center wasn't quite ready to be open yet. They were still doing a lot of work, but there was a lot of people there, a lot of participants, maybe like 50. And then other people like Dennis McKenna and Rak Razam and um, I can't remember his name, the guy that did the DMT Spirit Molecule DVD, or not DVD, movie. We watched it on DVD. And... Um, some great um, psychedelic artists were there too. And Thomas Q was there and who else? I can't quite recall. And myself made lots of great friendships um, in that experience. But it's true. The shaman, Mancoludo, was not a good shaman. His, uh, his, the way he would do it, he wouldn't sing Icaros. He wouldn't hold the space. So he would dose the participants in uh, like a center ceremony zone at the top of this hill. And then after that, they would be taken down like this line snaking down to the side of this hill, down into the Amazon, into the jungle, to these individual tent platforms where everybody would have their ayahuasca journey by themselves alone in the tents at night. And that was, that was the experience. And I did ayahuasca before the retreat began, because I wanted to understand the experience that the participants would be having. So before it started, I got there a couple of days early, I participated in that experience and it was, it was okay. I mean, it was quite deep and profound. Um, the insights in the, in the, in the, journey experience. It kind of brought me, I have this experience when I do psychedelics often where I feel like I'm fully remembering like, oh yeah, like this is why, like I can understand the spiral nature of reality back to this zero point of full remembering into source. 
and everything becomes clear. And it's like, oh yeah, it's this space again. And then the process of forgetting or coming back into normal waking consciousness is one of forgetting and you're kind of spiraling back out of it and like kind of the pieces of remembering are flying off. But we all have our certain sets of, or maybe similar, very similar sets of symbols that remind us or we turn towards that are our guiding principles. And we turn again and again towards these symbols or intuitive sense of what resonates with us till again we have that experience, which for me is sometimes a psychedelic one where I fully remember, if that makes sense. And then I forget again. So it was a journey like that where I got back to like center source and fully remember. And I remember this beautiful, like blue, green, purpley, fractally goddess being very, very present in my vision and through that. And it was like, okay, this will be okay. This could be okay for people. Um, of course, it's very dependent on the individual too, and what the like the subconscious states and conscious state that they're arriving with. And I, I know a lot of folks came to that journey and down to Chimbre to work with addiction because that was starting to be said more that ayahuasca can help with substance abuse and other traumatic experiences, healing of other traumatic experiences. So people were starting to use it for those kinds of things. And we're certainly there for that, a few of them. And um, then as people started to arrive and the retreat started to happen, there was this really clear division in the place of those who were sort of brainwashed by Moncaluto and thought he was the greatest and would do whatever he said. And then the skeptics were like, this guy doesn't know how to hold space and it's really dangerous and somebody could get hurt and we don't want to do ayahuasca with them. So people started to break off and do their own ayahuasca journeys. And there was this like rumbling uprising um, happening as the retreat's going on. And he would also do San Pedro too. So he he thinks of himself more as a San Pedro shaman, that that's it's, which is a cactus there from Peru, which is his main medicine. And he would use the ayahuasca mostly as like a purgative, I think, and not really value the use of it, at least not in the way the Westerners are wanting him to. And um, so both of those things were occurring. You could choose to do ayahuasca or San Pedro. And um, about midway through perhaps the second week, there was so much unhappiness by those, many of those in the camp, that the space wasn't being held, that he wasn't singing to Karos, that we all, had, or they all were sent out individually by themselves and having all these solo journeys. And so he finally agreed to let a Karos be led, but he didn't sing them. He brought in an outside shaman. And I thought to myself, okay, well, if this is going to be different and everybody's doing it together, I'll do uh, ayahuasca again with the group because I wasn't participating in anything because I was wanting to be clear and grounded and holding space for um, people's healing processes, which is what I was doing through the yoga and meditation and presence. And so decided to do ayahuasca again in this new setting with everyone else, with the Icaros. And I remember being in the ceremony space where we were getting the medicine and him saying something like how important it was to go into our fears and be really strong about it and be really brave or something like that. And then as soon as I drank the medicine, 
I remember this, oh, fuck feeling. And it's just getting so dark. And the <laughs> essence of the, it was just, it felt like the experience I went into, for lack of a better description, felt like a giant fuck you. And that the nature of reality was just like a cosmic joke, giant fuck you, the joke's on you. And it was so more like demonic and dark, similar to that first LSD experience. And the dose that I had that I was given was so potent, so high, at least I guess for me, we, w- we left the main center, circular ceremony center. And then we went outside and we were under the stars and everybody was on their individual mats. And then there was the new shaman there that was singing the Yakaros. And for whatever reason, one of the ways that I processed being so cosmically um, splattered was sound. And I guess I was really loud most of the night with like singing and moaning and asking for help and all kinds of stuff. I think the tone and vibration and sound was like a way that I was self-soothing through the process because it was so, like I said, like a cosmic splatter and difficult. Um, yeah. So the vibration I think was helping me. And I remember this other one clear moment where I had been lying down and I sat up really quickly and just vomited, purged all down the front of my body and thinking to myself, at least that was a hallucination and that didn't just really happen. So glad I just hallucinated that and then laid back down and then was gone again. And then hours later kind of coming to more uh, uh, physical consciousness and realizing, why am I so sticky? And why am I so wet? And why do I smell? And I look down like, oh man, I did puke all over myself. And then just wandering away to one of the showers and showering it off and climbing back into bed. And I was fractured after that. I was really fractured and really depressed and felt... Um, super depleted and really ungrounded. And it was a very difficult experience. And a lot of the number of the folks, I remember Rack, he gave me his Aya book and told me to read it and was really sweet about processing with me. And um, a number of other people were incredibly kind as well because I was in, uh, oh man, just a depressed state of being after that. Because again, the truth of it for me was like this fuck you cosmic joke. And so coming out, I was like, oh man, that's true. Like that's what it is. It's just a giant fuck you. Oh, and I felt so bad for so long. Even going back, I felt horrible. And um, fortunately, a couple months later, I think it must have been June, I had been going down... I started going down to Teotihuacan in December of 2008 for these shamanic journeys led by my teacher, Lee McCormick. And this was my fourth time, I think, since then, going down that June. And so I was had this deep relationship with sham, um, the shaman there, Alberto, and with my teacher, Lee, and with Teo and the place. And the um, energy of the Toltecs and the Nagwals there, the work that we would do. And when I got there, I was still not well from that April experience in Peru. 
And um, Alberto really did some wonderful healing work with me to help put me back together. And I'm very, very grateful for that. And the space, Teo too, that journey was really important for my reintegration process. And um, and then Chimbre reached out not long after and said they were going to, going to have a second retreat. And would I come back down and be the yoga meditation teacher? And my response was, you guys, no way. Not unless you hold sacred space in these ways. It's so important. What you're doing now is so unsafe and somebody can really, really get hurt. And so I sent this long email with all these bullet points of how to hold sacred space, how to keep everyone safe, and the requirements of what they would need to do in that way for me to come and be a part of it. It was just, it was so dangerous, it seemed. And uh, they didn't respond. So I didn't go back. And uh, though when I was there, I forgot to mention, I did journey one night with San Pedro. And that's the only time that I've experienced the medicine San Pedro. And uh if you haven't had it, ayahuasca is like this brown kind of a liquidy sludgy brew that tastes really horrible that can cause you to purge out of all ends. And that's part of the experience. And then San Pedro, the way that they did it, it was like um, this thick, like think like oatmeal meets cat litter that you blend up. So like grainy and um, slimy and sludgy and thick. And I remember drinking the San Pedro and it being so terrible, the taste. I would puke it back up, but I would catch it in my mouth and swallow it back down. And then I would do some more and the same thing would happen. It was like the insides of my throat were like clawing against it. Like, don't swallow it. It just wouldn't go down. Four times that happens. I know it's maybe DMI, but I would puke it back up, hold it in my mouth and swallow it back down. And eventually I'm like, I think that must be enough for me. I'm not going to push it anymore. And then the similar experience where they take you down into the jungle and you're by yourself. And it was a full moon that night. And uh, ayahuasca is a, or not ayahuasca, San Pedro for me, felt quite energizing and my senses felt really alive. And I felt um, like I was in touch with the internal space when I would close my eyes and go there. But I also felt a strong desire to move and be physical in my body. So I got out of my tent and wandered by myself under this full moon in the Amazon uh, for hours probably like down through these long pathways into this clearing and just like did yoga and danced and moved and sang and was felt really connected. And um, it was a pleasurable experience, certainly my body. And then I came back out and um, out of the jungle even, and I walked myself back up out from where the tents were and spent a lot of time in that central courtyard where we had done the group ayahuasca experience and really enjoyed it, really enjoyed the energy of the moon, the full moonlight in the jungle, and then the soul space that I was into. I remember seeing all these different Buddhas. And so that's to say the experience with San Pedro was um, was good. It was a good experience. It was, And then the second time I did ayahuasca was after that. San Pedro was in the middle. And uh, yet the one that left me shattered. And again, very grateful to Alberto and Teo for helping me integrate that experience. And then um, 
I haven't done ayahuasca since. That was the last time. I've sort of been um, tentative with that one too. I don't really feel a big need or a big calling um, to do it. And so I've been invited to different retreat centers that have opened in Costa Rica and Mexico to participate. But when I check in, it's still just a no with that one. And San Pedro, I have a different feeling about. I would experience that at one again, I think for sure. But ayahuasca, not so sure. Not really interested in that. And then in a flashing forward though, to just a couple of years ago, my parents have started to, my mom and my stepdad, explore and get interested in um, psychedelics. And so they've had their own journeys with ayahuasca. And then we had the opportunity to have a psilocybin, a magic mushroom experience together. And so I've had the uh, honor and privilege of journeying into that space with my mom and my stepdad through a psilocybin ceremony where I sat with them the first night and the other participants, I was a sitter. And then the second night was, uh, I had the opportunity to go really deep with the psilocybin. And I took the this the psilocybin ceremony that I was in in a really sacred way where I was on a specific dieta like you do for ayahuasca for about a week and really intentional going into the space and um, felt really connected to the person that was leading the ceremony as well. And the second night when it was my turn and everything was dosed very precisely based on these um, individual interviews and consultations. So then when I got my dose, I didn't quite realize how high of a dose it was. And my metabolism is one that processes things so quickly. And it was almost instantaneous from drinking the medicine and the music beginning to being in this cosmic space. But when it started to happen, I, I don't think I've ever felt more calm and grounded and centered and I don't want to say confident, but unafraid um, going so far into the psychedelic realms, the inner realms. And uh, that was a long, powerful journey. The themes of death for some reason come up again and again, but when it would arise, there wasn't fear around. It was just like more of the oh yeah, oh yeah, that's that's what happens. And oh yeah, and then it starts again. So more of not death as an endpoint, but death as a spiral, like death, birth, life, death, birth, rebirth, life happening over and over and over again. And that being okay. And that being okay, that that's the way that it was. So having a, a deeper appreciation for death, after that in life at the same time. So grateful to have shared that space with uh, my parents. And then uh, also, like I spoke to in my most recent podcast about ketamine, having several really exquisite psychedelic ketamine experiences, um, MDMA also, psilocybin also. So now finding my footing a lot more um, than I did, of course, when I was a teenager and not knowing anything and fumbling through. But the insights and the from the, these journeys and from the use of these substances, for me, is what it's about. It's not like 
I, I still don't really use substances as such in a recreational kind of way. They're intentional and they're for a purpose and it's done very consciously and the insights gleaned like when you're in a psychedelic state, you often think like, oh, this is the truth, the most important thing. And I can't forget it. I need to write it down. And you'll look at it the next day and it'll be like the word one or all or truth or love. That's, that's meaning like you feel so much, so strongly, so purely, so simply how we are all one and how we are all connected and how love is the underlying energetic nature of reality and source consciousness and you feel it and you're in it and you're living it and you are it and you feel your godness, you feel your divinity and it's so um, irrefutable and totally true and an amazing reminder beyond all the constructs and the, and the judging mind and the limits of form of this waking consciousness that we're in that when we are able to move beyond that veil and be immersed into that space, it's, and you can soften into it, it's, it's powerful and it's important. And this is just a little bit of some of the psychedelic highlights, experiences that I've had. And I know that it will continue to be a part of my life as it has been from a very young age. And um, the use of them is incredibly therapeutic. And it's been done for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years throughout most of human history, like Graham Hancock says, since 30,000 years ago, there were evidence, there was evidence of um, humans using psychedelics and shaping our experience here on earth and our experience with each other and facilitating our connection to the divine or God or other or absolute. And I'm really curious to see where this new renaissance in the West, in America, with the use of psychedelics in a more public, known, legal way could take us. Um, I remember down in Peru during that Chimbre experience, there was, and around that time, 2011, 10, there was a lot of talk about how ayahuasca was healing the planet and it was the thing. But it's psilocybin is very similar and ketamine also has the same potential. And what that means to heal the planet, I don't even know, but I know it's a teacher and I know it's a way to learn about ourselves and the what it means to be human and alive. And, and, and one of the greatest remembrances is our connection to the natural world. Oh, I just read this book. The Psilocybin Solution by Simon Powell, who's the guy that I met at that Cancun Mayan retreat back in 2010 or 11. And uh, man, it was so good. It was really good in describing uh, what psychedelics do, psilocybin in particular, like how it works on the brain and all the synaptic connections that are created and why or how you have hallucinations. And then partnered with his theory about why psychedelics exist, what their role is in nature, this idea that everything in nature 
has a role and nature is evolving itself. And the the climactic theory being that humans are consciousness that is evolving as nature to in order for nature to become aware of itself and to evolve into a higher state so maybe essentially like nature is man and nature is god so man and nature are god and god are all the same thing and that's it's a highly um highly intelligent, systematic, evolutionary process that's unfolding all of the time and we are a part of it. That's kind of like a hack job, (laughs) the description of this book. But if you're interested more, it's so, so good. I loved it. It was a little repetitive at times, but man, I just ate it up. That's the psilocybin solution. The role of the sacred mushrooms In the Quest for Meaning by Simon Powell. I asked Simon if he would be on my podcast and unfortunately he turned me down because he said he's semi-retired and he's not doing work like that anymore. But his book, this one is so good. He's got other ones out there. I haven't read them, but um, I'm sure they're probably equally as good. And maybe that's a good place to stop right here. I've got um, more things coming up in the future like the Esalen Psychedelic Integration Weekend week. It's a whole week um, in June that I'll be attending with East Forest and um, looking more personally into the ketamine training. And um, we'll see. We'll see how it's all unfolding. Lots, lots, lots happening in America around psychedelics, which feels um, true that it's happening. True meaning like... um, right on course on target that it's that's that we're, we're no longer having these sacred pieces of human experience relegated to the shadows and the illegal and what we can't talk about let's just start to talk about it let's start to share experiences let's learn from each other and let's turn again towards nature and the divinity within nature as a source of as the source, as the source, as the source. So with that, maybe get outside today, go on a little walk, take some deep breaths as you put your face up to the sunshine and soak it in, feel your feet on the ground, the wind on your skin, hear all the sounds around you and feel a sense of gratitude for being a soul in this body for being a living, conscious part of nature.